The fury of the violence illustrates the folly of war. It is time to put armed conflict on lockdown and focus together on the true fight of our lives. Dear listener, we find ourselves amidst a true global crisis. Our interconnectivity is more apparent than ever. Nothing seems what it once was. Now is the time to radically realize a world which holds violence and conflict and stops excluding women and youth. As Chris continues to breathe, these builders worldwide continue to work on a more peaceful world for tomorrow. This season is all about the peace builders making this needed change possible. Listen to their inspiring stories and reimagine this new reality with us. Welcome to the Peace Corner podcast, brought to you by GPAC, UNOI Peace Builders, CSPPS, and Pass Peace. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Peace Corner podcast. In this episode, we will dive into the topic of displaced and marginalized communities in Southeast Asia during the COVID-19 crisis. Today, I am joined by two incredible peace builders. Kinomar, one of the most famous Burmese activists who has been on the front lines of women's empowerment and political reform since 1988, and who is currently the chair of the board of Progressive Voice Burma. And I am also joined by Mark Batak, who works at the Initiatives for International Dialogue, a Philippines-based advocacy institution promoting human security, democratization, and people-to-people solidarity. So yeah, hello and welcome, uh, Omar and Mark. It's very nice to have you here today. And maybe let's start with a little bit of an introduction. Omar, uh, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? What was your journey towards becoming a peace builder? Well, I was a student uh, activist back in 1988. Um, I was a part of organizing the nationwide pro-democracy uprising. Um, I just, you know, I just started because I witnessed the injustice in front of me. Uh, that is uh, uh, the violence in, uh, uh, committed by the government, by the state, uh, towards the peaceful demonstrators calling for democracy and uh, human rights. And I think that was the very beginning of my the the the, the beginning of the journey that I started taking. Um, now, after 30 years, I continue uh, just because I really want to see the the people in Burma, Myanmar, mm-hmm. really are able to be able to live in the you know like uh, with the dignity as human being, and also the the violence from you know that imposed by the state. You know, I see that that impunity must end. So I think that's where the beginning of my uh, peace builder journey. Mm-hmm. And currently you are uh, the chair of the board of Progressive Voice Burma, right? What, what are you currently doing? And Progressive Voice is a human rights uh, research and advocacy organization. And particularly our focus is, our focus is on for the situation of the marginalized and uh, vulnerable communities in Burma, Myanmar, particularly the ethnic and religious minorities. And um, we work with the local uh, partner organizations and particularly the, those who are from the ethnic and uh, religious minorities communities, particularly affected by the different level of conflicts and armed conflicts as well. Thank you, Omar. That's, uh, that's very interesting. And how about you, Mark? Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, how did you become a police builder? I, I never saw myself really becoming a peace peace builder. I think mm-hmm. none of us, um, when, when we started this, that uh, we expected that this would be the path that we will take. I think, um, in, in my case, I come from a, a part of, of the Philippines, the eastern part, where um, 
province where there's um, massive poverty, but at the same time, in in that province, um, it's one of the provinces where there's deep armed conflict um, between the government and the Communist Party of the Philippines uh, through its uh, New People's Army, and and my father was a and is a still a civil servant. So at a very young age, I think um, I was primed to be familiar with politics, with governance. Um, and when I came to university and entering one of the most progressive and the most progressive uh, university here in, in the Philippines, that's when I became more familiar with the intricacies of how deeply related um, governance is, malgovernance is with um, the experience of communities um, of uh, poverty, inequality, as well as um, the conflict that it, it breeds. And eventually I found myself um, years after working with, since I was also very much involved with youth activism and student activism, that's also when I got involved with youth peace building and eventually to peace building itself. So it was a not a path that is um, uh, linear, I think, for, for any one of us, but um, it, it really starts, I think, with a, an awareness of what is happening with us and that how peace and justice um, is linked in, 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 in the experiences that we, we, we see. Thank you, Mark. Um, and uh, since both, both of you are peace builders and we are currently witnessing a global crisis like no other. So the coronavirus pandemic has deepened the plight of the most vulnerable, displaced and marginalized communities, such as ethnic minorities, refugees and women and children. So can you tell us a bit more how the COVID-19 crisis has affected the situation of the, of the displaced and marginalized communities in Southeast Asia? COVID-19 is always, at least at the very start, was said to be an equalizing experience that COVID, the virus, does not discriminate. But in, in the experience of many of our partners and the partners of the focal points of uh, GPAC Southeast Asia, we saw that the virus, the pandemic, discriminates and unevenly impacts on certain communities. Um, it widens um, inequality, it exacerbates poverty, it further strengthens um, and um, provides opportunity as to um, exacerbate factors of, of conflict. In, in, in the case of Southeast Asia, the, I think the first one um, that, that we've noticed, and Omar could add more details into this when it comes to Myanmar, but what you notice is the first one is uh, it really um, opened opportunities for national elites, the military, the state, the actors within the state that have interest to perpetuate their power. Um, to discriminate and, and, and whatnot, to further do that. So we see a, sh a, a real shift in, in the use of emergency powers of crisis response to further discriminate or to um, perpetuate them, further collate uh, power. And uh, we see that in the Philippines right now where there's the proposed anti-terrorism bill also in, in Myanmar as well, the, um, some in, in certain areas where um, the, the, the crisis response was used to crack down on the media, um, close down 
um, access to the internet. We've, we've seen that in, in not just in Southeast Asia, but in, in many parts of the world. But just to say that it really opens that, that opportunity to further strengthen that hard security paradigm of um, governments. But secondly is those that are who often feels like they don't have a voice. They feel like they are powerless in policies, programs that impacts them. Right yeah. now, because of the lockdown, because we don't have, you know, we cannot go out. We, we, it's, it's difficult to uh, mobilize, to meet with, with policymakers. We don't also have um, differences in access to technology. Communities have different um, speeds and bandwidth in, when it comes to the, the internet. So their needs are even more invisibilized in, the, in this context. When we look at uh, undocumented migrants, of course, um, when we talk about refugees, when we talk about indigenous peoples, when we talk about discriminated ethnic minorities, those who are structurally marginalized in policymaking and decision-making, even more so in, the, in, in this process, they are invisibilized and, they, and their needs are not put to the front. Would you say then that um, the government is using the pandemic as an excuse to further marginalize these already vulnerable people? I think the, the virus provides, for two reasons, I think that, that it provides an opportunity for, for this to happen, for state to accumulate uh, further power and further discriminate. I think the first one is the means for communities and civil society to fight back and struggle, you know, mm-hmm. um, and hold their governments into account that's that's now limited because we cannot go out it's um the logistics of that is quite difficult the communities themselves and civil society are distracted with just surviving um in in the case of the the proposed terrorism bill in in the philippines anti-terrorism bill in the philippines a lot of partners i've been talking to them in the past days are you familiar with this proposed law that will again target the Muslims in the South that will target, target indigenous peoples in, in, the, in, in their ancestral domain. They do not know enough of what's happening because they are focused in surviving. They have to find means to find food, um, uh, provide for, for, their, for their families, which is now limited because we are in, in, a, in a lockdown uh, situation. And there's just a lot of things happening with, you know, um, Naomi Klein um, uh, once termed this as um, shock doctrine. Um, we're in, 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 in certain cases, um, we're in, uh, there's just um, confusion. It provides really that opportunity for policies to be implemented, which otherwise in normal, and in, of course in quotation, uh, in, in, in quotation marks, normal situations would have difficulty being pushed by um, the, uh, our policymakers and the government. Yeah, uh, we have already, for example, witnessed um, Malaysia, for example, refusing uh, the boat with uh, Rohingya refugees to enter because of COVID-19, using this as an excuse. So it is definitely allowing uh, the government to use it as an as an excuse. And Omar, actually looking specifically at the example of Myanmar, we have seen actually the government using the pandemic to in- intensify the repress- repression of ethnic uh, communities and the human rights defenders and the media. Can you talk about this a bit more? Yes, uh, surely. Um, our organization, uh, Progressive Voice, we just uh, published a new report called A Nation Left Behind, Myanmar's Weaponization of COVID-19, in which uh, uh, we look into how both the 
civilian government led by Aung San Suu Kyi, as well as the Myanmar military, are actually uh, using or uh, exploiting the COVID-19 time uh, for their political gain, uh, particularly for the military. Uh, their gain actually includes the they intensifying the military operations against the ethnic minorities. So actually what we see is, I mean, before the COVID, the situation for the ethnic minorities in Myanmar is already way too vulnerable already. It's because uh, before the COVID, the government was already uh, going ahead with their national plan to shut down, close the IDP caps across the country. In Of course, when we talk about the internally displaced people's camps, that means in the ethnic minority areas where the conflict is. And those plans been going ahead without consulting to the people who are affected. On top of that, what we, we have seen already is that along with the intensifying conflict uh, throughout the last year and year before, throughout the 2019, particularly in the western part of Myanmar, uh, in Rakhine State, what we see also is that both the government and the military often block the humanitarian aid delivery to the most needy people. So the humanitarian aid access has been uh, quite a problem. The international aid organizations are not able to have access. Even the local people who want to help out themselves are being uh, basically are blocked by the government. You know, the people even themselves cannot build, uh, you know, just as a, a very simple shelter for the IDPs, for example. They cannot do it. So that's where the problem's been uh, quite uh, problematic already before the COVID. But at the same time, throughout the last year, in the western part of Myanmar, in uh, Rakhine State and some part of Chin State, the government has already uh, imposed this internet shutdown, which is now more than a year at the moment. So that this internet shutdown was already uh, quite problematic for the people in the conflict area or the media to have access to information and really, you know, like a report to the public of what is really happening, particularly the conflict-related abuses, uh, torture, you know, uh, uh, extrajudicial killing, and, you know, like uh, the Myanmar military indiscriminately targeting the civilian population by even like uh, shelling and bombing and those stuff, which um, that is already happening before the COVID. But now come the COVID. What we see is that um, the government, are, uh, you know, like a priority or the like a special attention that should be given to those most vulnerable community. We're not seeing that from the government. And the, the internet shutdown continue, the humanitarian aid blockage continue. So, you know, like even uh, the COVID-19, you know, like uh, for the WHO to uh, bring the COVID-19 uh, swab to do the testing, the, 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 the car was actually attacked. So basically, um, what we see in is that, you know, the military, I mean, it is actually uh, taking this uh, COVID time to even intensify their, their military operations or attacks against uh, the ethnic communities. And, you know, like uh, the ethnic armed organizations in Myanmar from different ethnic communities, they call for the nationwide ceasefire. As much as we as the civil society call for the nationwide ceasefire, and it was not responded by the government. And then the military, Myanmar military responded like after like a couple of months time. But then they are actually, you know, their response is like, yes, four months ceasefire, which is starting now to next four months, four months ceasefire, but excluding the areas where they are actually uh, intensifying the fighting, like in the Western. 
So again, this is, we are seeing that, you know, like a civil society doesn't have access to those areas as much as also the, 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 the military, I mean, sorry, the media, like Mark said, media has been cracked down and particularly the ethnic uh, media, ethnic uh, based medias who have access to their own community and situation are not, uh, not only that they are not allowed to, uh, uh, what do you call like a report that they are, they are, they are being chased down and they are being targeted with this um, anti-terrorist law. So yeah. that's a, that's a, we, are, we are seeing a huge problem. Are, are foreign journalists allowed um, to, to in the country and to report on these cases? Well, there are some uh, you know, international um, media, uh, mm-hmm. but they don't have access to those areas. They cannot go beyond uh, like a you know, capital city or certain area where they, you know, they have, there are different uh, areas where the government already have uh, different colors, right? Basically the areas where there is an active armed conflict, absolutely no. But there are also some mixed area where the ceasefire is between the ethnic armed organizations and the Myanmar government and the military. But those uh, mixed, uh, mixed administration areas that they call um, they're not also allowed by the, uh, you know, uh, for the, um, media to have access. It's not only for the international, even for the local media, they don't have access to those areas, except the, you know, like if there is any particular ethnic media, meaning like, you know, if there is a Quran community, if they have yeah. an independent Quran media is there, they have direct access to the ground. They have the immediate access to the ground. And they can verify the facts right away, information right away. They can report right away. But then what also in the COVID time in March in particular, the government actually uh, took down more than 200 websites. That includes um, some of those uh, ethnic media who yeah. are able to report those conflict related situations and conflict related uh, abuses. Yeah. And so what we are currently seeing uh, in Myanmar, just to um, uh, kind of summarize, is is basically, um, despite various international and uh, and national also actors warning um, the government to put down their weapons, like and cease fire. This has not happened. We are seeing a crackdown on journalists, on freedom of speech, and also there is internet access. I can also imagine that the lack of internet access is actually preventing um, the most marginalized and displaced communities from getting access to information on how to how to combat COVID-19 and what, what protection to use. Is that correct? That's very correct. And in, in addition, also what is so worrying for us, and it's very disturbing to see that Myanmar military is actually destroying the COVID-19 prevention measures being taken by the ethnic armed organizations for, you know, like uh, in their territories for their ethnic communities. So this is very disturbing to see because the first, this is the, 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 the public health crisis pandemic, you know, that everybody should be walking together where the ethnic armed organizations call for the nationwide ceasefire to work together to prevent or combat this uh, COVID-19. But then uh, the response from the Myanmar military is not only like, you know, like uh, responding to the call for the ceasefire, but they are actually, they are destroying the COVID-19 preventions or they are blocking, they're blocking yeah. the COVID-19 preventions by the ethnic armed organizations who have, a, you know, the, who speak the same language, you know, to the community who don't speak the, the, the majority Burmese language that the Myanmar uh, military represent. So that is a very worrying, but also not only that, the Myanmar military is actually threatening the local community, such as like in Shan State, not to take the COVID prevention uh, assistance 
from the ethnic armed organizations or ethnic armed organizations. Uh, they, are, they have a health uh, department who are trying to help out the, the situation. So it's even worse that they are, they are, they are disturbing and, and preventing those local initiated preventive measures to combat COVID. What, 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 what is worrying that um, uh, uh, we're seeing is the Myanmar military also using the COVID-19 as an opportunity to, uh, you know, like, uh, to promote their role in the country. So they are, what they are doing is they've been uh, going around to the different public uh, spaces, including the Buddhist pagodas, Buddhist monasteries, and some public hospitals, bringing in, you know, wearing the military uniforms, bringing in these COVID-19 prevention assistance materials, such as a mask or, you know, like uh, other, other, other stuff. But what worries me is because we were under the military regime for like really long, for many decades, even now, the civilian government, uh, the, the power that they are able to exercise is very limited under the constitution, where the military remains to be more like a de facto government yeah. in civilian. So now coming back into this, uh, the public face, you know, using the COVID uh, to promote their political gain, or the, you know, like uh, with the, the wearing the military uniforms, bringing in the COVID while not, not uh, you know, like, uh, uh, going under the civilian, uh, civilian government oversight. That is worrying. They are actually not only that they are not going under the uh, civilian government oversight of their COVID-19 assistance to the people, but they are actually discrediting and undermining the government within the parliament, yeah. which is to us is quite, uh, you know, like a, it's a mockery of, of the government statement of like uh, no one left behind, sort of like a policy, which is, of course, uh, has a lot of flaws in the actual implementation. A lot of international media around the world and, and also activists around the world are particularly worried about the Rohingya refugee camps in Bangladesh and the situation there. Uh, there are over 900,000 uh, refugees there. Can you tell us a bit more about the situation? Yeah, sure. Um, it's correct. Uh, it's it's um, the biggest refugee camp is in Caucasus Bazar in, in Bangladesh. And Bangladesh is um, identified by the UNHCR as a priority country for a COVID response. So um, it's understandable where the concern is coming from. And we are also concerned in civil society and a lot of civil society working on refugee rights issues and conflict issues. It was in around two weeks ago where the first two confirmed cases within the camps were, um, were identified. One was from a local host, um, a local community host member and a, a Rohingya. A refugee, and it was just days ago where when the Rohingya refugee died of uh, complications due to COVID. There are so far right now uh, limited cases in in Bangladesh itself. But again, the worry is with the setting of the camps, wherein physical distancing is impossible, where access to sanitation to water is very difficult. Okay. That is the bulk of the concern really is, especially when um, the access to healthcare is um, uh, deeply under-resourced, then that's something that we, uh, a, a really a big area for, for worry. Some modeling suggests, in fact, that there will be 500,000 to 550,000 infections in the camp in the next 12 months if this is not uh, prevented. Um, that hospital capacity, which is just 340 hospital uh, beds, will be exceeded within just 60 to 140 days upon uh, a breakout in, in, in the camps. 
um, the Cox's Bazar Medical College Hospital has COVID testing and isolation resources available, but it's limited and with limit, limited um, PPE. And the UNHCR is still planning to for increasing bed spaces to 1,500, uh, aiming to use a new center for isolation for new refugee arrivals. I know that um, for a fact that the Ranger refugee and, and the local community hosts that were the first two cases that were confirmed were were brought. Um, telecommunications have so far restored in the camps, but are, of course, very weak in, in many areas. So again, access to information to how to respond to this on the individual level. Of course, governments and um, INGOs will support, but it's it takes awareness raising in the individuals themselves to, to capacitate them to address the most immediate um, risks and threats to them of the virus on the individual level. And, and if you've seen camps as well, the um, sanitation is always a, a huge issue, especially when people are crowded in such a, uh, a, a small uh, space. But also there's all, a lot of reports about confused authority structures in, in, in the camps um, having blocked um, some NGO vehicles access. Um, they must be uh, are being required to, to register with local law enforcement. There's a lot of confusion when it comes to how to go about this, even up right now, already several weeks and months in, into the, the pandemic. And of course, um, the use of barbed wire to, to close off the camps is, of course, um, increasing uh, fear among the uh, refugee population. I think what's really needed in the camps are um, development of COVID-19 information packages that are fit to the needs of, of, of the uh, refugees and uh, of the population within the, the camps. Translation and distribution of key messages should be translated in, in the local languages. They should tap into the local um, structures already that were quite built around uh, the communities within the, the camp. And of course, NGOs must be provided leeway in accessing them. We understand there's a lot of agencies that have finding it difficult to provide aid precisely because of the confusion when it comes to the authority structures. When, when we talk about uh, the issues of those in the refugee camps, we also shouldn't forget that we should ask what led them in the first place to be in this possession. They are being pushed to the situations, to host countries, to Malaysia, to Thailand, wherein they are not recognized, they are not provided as well with, with recognition. Some of these countries do have not signed the Convention on uh, International Refugee Rights. And of course, in, ref in, in the refugee camps, you, there's so much limited access of what you could do really when it comes to access to education, to livelihood, etc. There have been a lot of vulnerabilities uh, that these uh, communities have been facing that were already there before the pandemic. And the pandemic only opened again and, and, and further strengthened these vulnerabilities precisely because this, was this wasn't addressed in the first place. The, the uh, systematic discrimination that was happening, land grabbing, the lack of access to healthcare as well, to citizenship in their place of origin, which is rightfully in, in Myanmar. Thank you, Mark. Omar, do you do you have anything to add on this? 
Yes, uh, surely. Uh, thanks, Mark. I just want to add a few things. Is uh, first is I just want to also add. Uh, I mean, I learned from the news reporting that uh, there are about fifteen thousand uh, refugees are now in. Uh, they are placed in the quarantine. So I think it's it's very uh, worrying also because I've been to the the camps myself and I see how uh, crowded. The, the you know congested the, the area the situation for the the people in the camps uh one thing i see you know like as a peace builder when i look at you know um the situation for such vulnerable community the people in the community are the one who can actually lead who can actually solve the problems who need to be supported you know, like who need to be supported to have their voice hearted but also their efforts initiatives locally for their community need to be supported. For example, like with this pandemic, even before the pandemic, I would say that before the pandemic, you know, in the last uh, couple of years of the time since the, the genocide uh, took place and they uh, arrived in Bangladesh and all these camps are set up. And one thing that I've been advocating for is um, for the Bangladesh authorities to support the people in the camp, the Rohingya people themselves, to be able to have a space to have a, like a, you know like a women youth to be, to come up themselves as community leaders to educate raise awareness on different issues of course education is something that i really want to see for example the bangladesh government i really want to see the bangladesh government support the education opportunities for the uh, the the young children the the youth in the camp the same thing is also this, uh, you know, like uh, supporting the civil society um, community-based uh, activities that is led and initiated by the communities. Because I'm I'm bringing this to the also the authorities' attention as well in my you know different um, advocacy platforms is because like you know on Thailand side you know when you know I see the these refugee camps on the Thailand border there are still about nine refugee camps are still I mean the Thai government don't call them as refugee camps uh, because they're not uh, signatory to the 1952 refugee convention however these are refugees and you know they have they have this temporary shelters that the thai government provide so th we still have you know like uh, uh, more than 100,000 refugees in those different uh, camps and what i see is in the past there's a larger larger population refugee population the women and the youth in the refugee camps they actually mobilize themselves. They organize themselves. They educate the people, you know, like a health education. Uh, it could be different issues. And now, I mean, in, with the COVID, I think like, you know, if the community, the refugee community had a chance and space to organize themselves, to do this, um, uh, you know, like a, a awareness raising and, you know, that kind of space, if they had that kind of space provide, uh, supported by the authorities in Bangladesh. In this kind of pandemic, both for the community as well as the international actors who are helping the situation and for the Bangladesh government and authorities, they will have a, a better chance of to, you know, prepare to combat uh, the, the pandemic. I think this is something as a peace builder, I really want to support and I advocate for that so hard is because people in the community are the one who know, you know, they speak their own language. They know their situation. They know that, the, you know, like uh, the, 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 how the, the community can actually be heard of like, uh, you know, different information. So, th so they are the one who need to be supported. But I don't see that um, actually happen, you know, like as much as I saw that on the Thailand side. Mm -hmm. So I think it's something that Bangladesh government uh, will have to look into that. This is like the, the most important, uh, you know, ground solution for the authorities or the international actors who will help. 
So do you have any takeaway message or an inspiring story you have seen in, in the responsive of, responses of peace builders to COVID-19? So in, in Myanmar, uh, many ethnic communities, they have uh, translated the COVID-19 uh, awareness raising like uh, information about the virus in the, at their ethnic languages. And they've been uh, posting on their Facebook page, uh, spreading that you know information into their communities through different ways, through the media, and also uh, I, I also there is a uh, I see also like one of one of my very uh, good colleague also uh, who works in the uh, migrant education sector, and his organization has been I know that, I mean they are in Thailand and they've been producing like a, you know, like a massive number of masks they make themselves and, you know, like uh, they distribute to the uh, local, uh, the, the migrant workers. And also I have many colleagues uh, who are uh, working for the rights of the uh, industrial zone workers in Yangon. And they've been distributing masks, sanitizers, you know, soaps. And so there are a lot of these great um, local peace builders initiatives are happening uh, to prevent the COVID or to combat the COVID in their different communities. Thank you, Omar, for also uh, sharing with us some positive examples uh, in the times of pandemic. And yeah, thank you so much for joining us today at the Peace Corner podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Peace Corner podcast. We amplify the voices that pursue a sustainable peace, especially now in the face of a pandemic. Keep reimagining a better world with us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be listening.